Well, hey guys, welcome back. Welcome tonight to our biblical leadership series. We've come quite a ways, and we're, uh, I'm not sure if I'd say we're halfway through. We're probably a bit further than halfway, but we've, uh, we've come to, uh, in a sense, a halfway mark as we've split this study up into uh, halves. So I'm looking forward to beginning a second half of it tonight. You know, a little while ago, we started this biblical leadership series, and our purpose has been to try and give some teaching and equipping on the nature of leadership in the church. We're not interested in secular leadership or government leadership or corporate leadership tactics and practices. We're not looking for, you know, top tips to be a a better team player. We just want to know what are the precepts and principles from Scripture when it comes to leadership. And that can be applied in the church or in the home or wherever. But we just want to know what the Bible says about leadership. Why are we setting this again? A couple of reasons. One, it's, it's just in the Bible, and so it's worth it. Anything the Bible is worth studying. The Bible has a lot to say about leadership, so it's, it's a worthy subject just by itself. But two, we have a desire here at Brian Bible Church to be raising up ministry leaders, teachers, small group leaders. As we grow, we want to be more faithful to uh, multiply ourselves and equip up others who can lead, teach, and train, and just disciple the church And so this teaching serves in a way as like a little basic training for those who are in leadership or aspiring to leadership, gives them a little taste of what it looks like, what it means to to be a leader. So it can help in that regard. And and then third, it's, it's always important for the church to know what the Bible says about biblical leadership, that they can identify biblical leaders and pray for them and hold them accountable to understand what's the standard for leadership in the church. So for these reasons, we're studying this I don't know what to call it, series, class on biblical leadership. Now, again, as you recall, we're dividing it into two big general halves. The first is all about preparation, the preparation for leadership. And there we covered some important topics about what makes a leader in the church. And above all, we learned that the biblical leader is identified not so much by what he does, but who he is, or more specifically, who he is like, namely Christ Christ-likeness is at the heart of biblical leadership, both in the character of the leader and the mission. Remember the mission to present everyone complete in Christ, to to lead others to Christ-likeness. He's our model. He's the goal. And so when when it comes to the preparation of leadership, uh, foundational is is just Christ and Christ-likeness. We covered many topics in that first section including the importance of biblical leadership, the mission of biblical leadership, the power, the tools, the identity, the example, the character, the qualities, and the doctrine of biblical leadership. And so you put these studies together, you should have a pretty good idea already of what it means to be a leader in the church, what it looks like to be a leader. Now that being said, though, the function or the task of leadership is not without importance. We were very intentional in not just jumping to the, the how to and how to study, how to teach, all that stuff. And we wanted to pay a, a great amount of attention to the character of the leader first and foremost, because that is first and foremost. But now it is time to look at more of the task, the, the what does the person do and how does he do it? Although, again, the biblical leader is not defined by his tasks, but his character. Well, the tasks still matter. What he does still matters, and the task or practice of leadership is still an important part of leadership worth talking about. And so this now brings us to the second half or the second section in this study, which is all about the practice of biblical leadership, from the preparation of biblical leadership to the practice of biblical leadership. And we're beginning this second part today. And from here and throughout, we're going to cover some practical subjects, all concerning various how-tos of biblical leadership, including how to study the Bible, how to teach the Bible, how to shepherd, how to counsel, how to reprove and rebuke someone, how to lead a small group, and so on. And we're not trying to be exhaustive here. Much of the task of biblical leadership is, is caught and not taught, meaning you learn a lot just from observing and, and working with other leaders and following others. But on the, also, you know, on-the-job training goes a long way as well. 
But I want to teach you through some of these how-tos, partly for your equipping, and again, for a lot of you, maybe just partly just, just for exposure. You get a little taste of what it looks like to be a leader and some of the tasks of leadership. Some of you, in the end, you may never teach a Bible study. You may never lead a small group, but it's still worthwhile for you to get some exposure as to what goes into the various leadership tasks, what the leader is to do in a local church that you might better appreciate and pray for and assist your leaders. Without further introduction, that kind of sets the stage and sets us up for the second half where we'll be going in the next several weeks. Beginning tonight, though, we're going to start this first study in the second half with how to study the Bible. So if you're a a note-taker, I guess, technically this is lesson 10, you know, how to study the Bible. And that's foundational. That's going to be a foundational how-to for leadership, as we will see. Again, the mission of the leader is to make disciples, to present every man and woman complete in Christ, to see them grow in Christ-likeness. That's our mission within the church. And the main tool for that mission, remember we studied the tools of leadership, the main tool is the Word of God. For we know people need to change, they need to grow. We can't quite make them grow. We don't have that power. But God does, and He grows and changes people through His Spirit, through the Word. And so we found that biblical leaders, they're first and foremost ministers of the word. That's the the, the chief tool for seeing people grow in Christ-likeness. And sometimes that's formal. Sometimes ministering the word is formal, like what I'm doing right now, teaching a lesson, preaching a sermon, leading a small group study. There's formal times when you need to minister the word. But a lot of times, ministering the word is informal. A conversation, answering questions, encouraging someone, reproving someone. Providing guidance. Either way, though, you should know by now the biblical leader must be equipped with the word, knowing the word, to be able to minister that word formally and or informally. He needs to rightly wield the sword of the Spirit. But it should go without saying, before he can do that, he's got to know how to study the word, how to feed himself. Before he can really feed others, he has to know to rightly divide the word, to rightly feed himself, how to study the Bible, to get himself straight before he can lead and teach and guide others. A lot of you know 2 Timothy 2.15, where Paul says to Timothy, Be diligent to present yourself, approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We're dealing with the word of truth here. It's inerrant, it's inspired, it's profitable for our mission. That's what we need. And the workman here, he's a messenger of truth. He's not an originator of truth. And so the goal is to not come up with something new or novel or creative, but just to take what's there and cut it straight, to rightly divide it, to accurately handle it. What does that mean? That, That phrase, to accurately handle or rightly divide, the, the phrase was used of cutting a straight path, like a, farmo, a, farmo, a farmer cutting a straight furrow, a priest cutting a sacrificial animal just right, and a builder cutting rocks for placement, a tailor cutting a cloth. All these are precision cuts. You have to get it just right for the, or the job won't work, whatever you're doing. And so that's the, the picture of the minister of the word. To rightly divide, it means to, to, here's exactly what it means. It means this, not that. You're just cutting it straight. You're interpreting it correctly. You're accurately handling it. It's a skill position. And the workman needs to, to do that right. He will have to give an account. He needs to be approved. He aims to be approved. And he will give an account for his work. It's accountable to God. So take this task seriously. It just goes to say, you know, it behooves you. If you're going to be in any form of leadership in the church, well, hey, a a good starting place for a how-to, just figure out how to study the Bible. You're going to feed yourself, equip yourself. You should be doing that. And that's going to be your your lifeline for feeding, equipping, leading others. So as a first step, we want to talk about what it looks like to accurately handle the word of truth. Now, admittedly, it's, it's a big topic, how to study the Bible. We could devote an entire Sunday night series to that. And in fact, I've already done that. 
But I realize I think most of you weren't even here for that. Was anyone here for how to study the Bible Sunday night? Two, three? It was four. It was probably you know five years ago or something like that. And a lot of you guys weren't here, weren't here five years ago. But anyway, I taught a lengthy Sunday night series on how to study the Bible using nothing but free online tools. That was the little catch at the end. Like, you don't have to have a library. It was how to study the Bible with free tools only. All the messages and PDFs are on the website. So that's like the long version of how to study the Bible. But for our time tonight, we can't obviously rehash that in depth. These are meant to be a little more uh, bite-sized. But I want to synthesize a lot of that teaching and give you a you might say a crash course on how to study the Bible. Hopefully this will give you a solid dose, an introduction in what goes into this task, this first how-to of how to study the Bible. So that's, that's our goal tonight. That's what we're up to tonight. Now, I'm going to give you many steps, steps in studying the Bible. Before we get to those real quick, a few other introductory matters. So you're sitting down. You've got your place, your place of study, a desk, a living room, wherever it's going to be. You're getting ready. A few introductory matters to get yourself ready. Get a few things straight first. First, choose a Bible version. These tips or these instructions go before studying the Bible. See, there's kind of introductory things. You want to choose a Bible version. I take it most of you are not interacting with the Hebrew or the Greek, and that's perfectly fine. So you want to choose a solid English translation. There's many different translations, and behind them, different translation philosophies. They're not all created equal. You have some that are more of a thought-for-thought translation, and that's called dynamic equivalence. And here, translators take a bit more liberty in translation, and they add a little bit of interpretation to give the sense of the passage in the text. And these are good for casual reading, like the NIV, great for casual reading, But they're not the greatest for serious Bible study because you're going to be reading a good bit of someone else's interpretation. But here, if our goal is to study the Bible, we we want to do our own study of the Bible. So it's best to choose a Bible version that's just as close to the original text in English as possible. These are known as word-for-word translations or formal equivalent. And they're just meant to more closely reflect the original language. And so they may not read as smoothly, but that's okay. We're, we're just, we're studying here. We're buckling down to try and study and find out, here's what the text says. Here's what it means. And so I, I want to get as close to the original. As you well know that the Bible comes to us in primarily Hebrew and Greek. So I want as close to that as possible in, uh, with a faithful English translation. This is why we use NASB at the church, ESV as well is great. A New King James is also close to a formal equivalent. Those would be good choices for Bible study. Secondly, a second introductory matter, you know, choose a text. What are you going to study? This could be based on an audience. So maybe if you're going to teach someone, you could base that on what your audience might need to hear or just subjective, something you desire to study and teach or just study on your own. But you need to choose a passage of scripture. But As a a practical matter, you need to choose a suitable size of text to study or a suitable unit of thought. What is that, though? Just one verse or a whole chapter? How much are you going to study? How much should you study? Most new students of the Bible bite off way more than they can chew. And so it's best for beginners to choose a basic paragraph. The, The fancy word for this is pericope. It's just a basic unit for, of thought in the Bible. And some English translations split uh, the translation into paragraph form. I'm not sure what... Okay, so turn to Ephesians 2, for example, in your pew Bible. Not your Bible, your pew Bible. Just a quick little example here. Some translations will give you a little bit of help and guidance as to what can, uh, a paragraph consists of or a pericope consists of. These can be helpful. These are not inspired. These were added by the translators, but they help you know what's a unit of thought. And so if you're a Bible student, pick one of these little paragraphs or a unit of thought, and that's your go-to. But for example, the NASB typically does this here. Our Pew Bibles are NASB, and they identify paragraphs by a bold verse number, a bold verse number. So you look at Ephesians 2, 
obviously, uh, the first pericope is verses 1 through 10. Now, obviously, the, the two is bold, in bold, you know, uh, there at the header. But look at verse 11, for example. That's identifying the next unit of thought. Do you see how verse 11 is in bold? That's identifying that 11 through 22, the second half of the chapter, is its own unit of thought. And so you can just follow along after that. You see the bold throughout, and that you go from bold to bold, or bold to the next chapter, and you get yourself a unit of thought. So that's just a little tip in using an English Bible for picking a passage to study. So anyway, choose a Bible version, choose a text, and then a third reminder Remember the goal or understand the goal. You're sitting down. You're going to study, you know, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. What's the goal? What are you after in studying that passage? You tell me in your own words, what, what's the goal here? Why are you studying that passage? Or let me put it this way. What are you after? What are you trying to get at in studying that passage? Original thought, author's intent. Good. We would call it the authorial intent. The original author's intent. Basically what? The author meant in what he wrote. I don't care what that dead German commentator from the 1800s said it meant. I might read it. I might not. But I want to know what Paul meant in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. We're looking for the authorial intent. Scripture has one meaning. That one meaning is determined by God through the original author. And we're merely trying to arrive at the intended meaning. And this means we're not trying to read anything into the text. We're not trying to add anything. We're trying to extract or draw out what's already there and understand the passage as it was originally given. And we want to know what it meant from the original author to the original audience. Now, of course, there is a step later. It's called application where we take the original meaning and we do apply it to today for scripture is profitable in every age. But you're going to get the application wrong if you get the original meaning wrong. So we have to start with the original authorial authorial, uh, interpretation. So that's uh, just something to keep in mind. Remember what you're after here. Not what does it mean to me, but what does it mean? Let's just start there. And that's that's our goal in Bible study. We do want to get to how it applies and should impact our lives today. Uh, but we got to start with just what the text means. All right, that's enough for a little bit of intro to get you set. Now, it's, you, let's say you've picked a passage. You're going to study that passage. You want to understand it and eventually apply it. What do you do? you got a, maybe a blank piece of paper next to you and your Bible cracked open, a pen. And like, now what? How do I study this passage and figure out what Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 means or whatever? So let me give you some just practical steps. These are training wheels as you grow and develop as a leader, teacher, Bible student. You know, you can kick off the wheels and, and jump steps, you know, and just, you know, you find your own process, so to speak. But you'll see what I mean. Step one shouldn't change, though, and it's to pray. Step one is to pray. We know all scripture is God-breathed, 2 Timothy 3.16, or inspired by the Spirit of God. And 2 Corinthians or 1 Corinthians uh, 2 tells us that those without the Spirit cannot understand the things of God. So, you know, when you come to Scripture, you're trying to understand what it means. It's written by the Spirit. The Spirit is required for understanding its full impact and apprehending the text. This is partly a supernatural work, and so we need the Spirit's assistance in understanding Scripture. This is referred to as the illumination of Scripture or work of the Holy Spirit. It can be defined as, quote, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, whereby he enlightens those who are in a right relationship with him to comprehend the written word of God, end quote. And just look, the simple point here is knowing there is a spiritual element to Bible study. And we're not Gnostics talking about secret knowledge here, but just we're, the, the same Spirit who inspired the word is going to have to lead us into the truth. And so it should be obvious that prayer should be step one. And we need God's help to see clearly and to look past perhaps our preconceptions or our presuppositions and just see it with just clear eyes. And we want to approach God's word with a holy reverence as well, asking God to you know, give us clean hands, so to speak, to handle his word, just to be pure. And so just pray that the spirit would assist you in arriving at you know, the meaning of 
scripture and, and the application as well. But just keep in mind prayer, beginning, during, after, uh, that this is not a mental exercise only, but a spiritual exercise. Uh, you could say, you may say the, the ultimate goal is to feed on the word in your own life, right? Really to apply the word to your own heart. That, that should go without saying. And so this is not just a, an intellectual exercise. We want to pray and really apprehend what we're reading, what we're studying, take it in and, and grow in our own lives. And that's how you're going to be most effective in, in leading others anyway. All right, so first step, pray, pray throughout. Step two is read. All right, that's rocket science, I know. But step two, read. You might be surprised how people might take for granted Maybe the most important step, just read the text. You've got your passage, read it. You might be tempted just to jump to a commentary and see what that other person said about that text, but don't do that yet. Just read. Just read for yourself. Remember, the part of the purpose of this is, is to not just gain knowledge, but feed your heart, and you just put your eyes on the text in Scripture. Where do you begin? Where do you read? Well, if you have that passage in mind, you know, read that. And after you finish, read it again. And then you've read your passage a couple times, okay, read it a few more. And then a few more, and then a few more. Just read your passage a bunch. Saturate yourself in that passage. And you'll, you'll st- each time you'll start to see a few more observations, a few more things pop out. But just read it over and over, several times. Read slowly, read carefully. In your mind, you're going to be making observations. You don't need to take notes yet, but just just read and just let it sink in a little bit. And as you become familiar with your passage, then start branching out and reading the context. You'll learn later that the context is the most important factor in determining a text's meaning. It's all language has words and phrases and sentences that by the very nature of language can mean more than one thing. And so context, which is referring to that, the nearby subject matter, it's what defines the meanings of words and sentences. And so no passage exists in a vacuum. You read your passage and then read the various layers of context meant to help you understand your passage. And so when it comes to Bible study, there are various levels or layers of context you want to take into account. Think of the, the concentric rings of an onion for example, and you're working from the inside out. And so, by way of example, turn to Matthew 5, and I'll I'll give you seven layers of context you can look at, for example, Matthew 5. And then I'll give you seven layers of context. Let's say, just for whatever reason, you want to study just one verse Matthew 5.48, maybe it caught your attention. It's a, it is an interesting verse where Jesus says, Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And it just it caught you. You were like, I don't really want to know what that, what exactly does he mean there? And so you're just trying to study that one verse. And so obviously context is going to play a big part in understanding that one verse because that verse surely does not exist by itself. And so... Let's say you're trying to study Matthew 5.48. Well, you want to also read. So we're, in the, we're still in the reading stage, but you want to read a bunch of the context. You might start with the paragraph context. So number one, the paragraph context. And we've already defined a paragraph or a pericope. These are just the verses before and after your passage, just the, the paragraph your verse is in. So just read the paragraph context. And then secondly, the thought Context. Oh, by the way, for Matthew 5.48, that would be Matthew 5.43 through 48. So that's the, that last paragraph there that you'd want to read. Secondly, the thought context. These are the surrounding verses that deal with the same thought. And these can go beyond one paragraph. These can deal with several paragraphs, not always, but they can. And so, secondly, the thought context. Matthew, that would be Matthew 5.21 through 48, where... From 21 through the end of the chapter, and Christ is, is really developing the same thought. And so you'd want to kind of get that all together. And you want to read that context several times as well. Third, of course, is the chapter context. That's kind of self-explanatory. It's the chapter 
the verse is in. Keep in mind, these chapter divisions are not inspired. They're not part of the original text. But they are very helpful, added later by uh, biblical scholars, just to aid in our you know, parsing of Scripture. But still, it's helpful for uh, understanding, because they, they, they did a pretty good job of capturing major thought changes in, in the book. And number four is the subject context. And this is the greater subject your verse is in. It might span many chapters. Sometimes it could span several chapters, like you know, Romans 1 through 3 is well known for, uh, he's convicting Jew and Gentile for sin before he gets into Romans 4 through 6, the subject of justification by faith alone. And then 6 through 8 of sanctification and 9 through 11, Israel and the church, 12 through 16, the application, right? So you get basic subject context. And so find out the subject context for your verse best you can and then read that. So for uh, Matthew, that if you're studying Matthew 548, the chapter context, well, that's Matthew 5. The subject context is what? If you're going to study Matthew 548, what would the subject context be for that? Sermon on the Mount, which consists of Matthew 5 through 7. So there you go. Matthew 5 through 7 would be your subject context. This is an easy example because it's such a clearly demarked subject context, right? It's the Sermon on the Mount, starts at 5, ends at the end of 7. And that's clearly, you're not going to get Matthew 5.48. If you don't understand precisely how it fits in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, which itself is something to understand. What's he getting at here? What is Jesus teaching here in the whole sermon? Fifthly, you have the book context. And that's obviously just the book your verse is in. That's the whole book where how, how might what uh, is said elsewhere in this book relate or uh, apply to your verse? Now, of course, now we're really, we're, we're stretching the onion. We're getting to outer layers. Like a lot of what is in Matthew is not necessarily going to relate to any given verse per se, right? Not like every single verse is uh, interwoven in that sense. But you do want to have just a handle on the verse. And understanding, for example, in Matthew Matthew writing to a largely Jewish Christian audience and the idea of their, their background of, of Phariseeism or legalism, how the emphasis he places in Sermon on the Mount would be a big deal. That's why it comes out in Matthew, not in Mark and Luke and John. Things like that would really contribute, helping you gain an understanding of a verse. So you want to take into account the book context and also the author context. That's number six, the author context. And now we're talking about other books written by the same author. For Matthew, there are none. For Paul, there's a bunch. For Luke, there's Luke and Acts, right? You get the, the gist. And this is just, that's, that's what's called um, biblical theology, where you're understanding what a given author wrote and, and uh, how that might contribute to your passage. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't, but just understanding what was said elsewhere by the same author uh, might help. And lastly, you've got the Bible context. The whole Bible. So that's obviously the biggest layer of context. But we know that scripture is all inspired by God. The same God who, of course, he used many human authors, but the same spirit inspired it all. And scripture cannot err or contradict. And so the idea of of cross-referencing and seeing how scripture interprets scripture, scripture supports scripture. And so just understanding all of scripture and how your verse fits in all of scripture and how other parts of scripture might relate and compare or even contrast just how it fits and that's it's part of it and of course that's a big one that takes some time to gain a the better your grasp and handle on the whole bible the better you'll you'll get at that that's more of an upper level thing but nonetheless it's a part of the context to take into account best you can So the paragraph context, the thought context, the chapter context, the subject context, the book context, the author context, and the Bible context. Now, we're still, we're just in step two, which is reading. So let's say you're studying Matthew 548, for example. And so if I were you, you know, you're reading the Sermon on the Mount several times and you're reading that paragraph or really the thought, Matthew 5, 21 through 48, you're going to read that many times and just Sermon on the Mount, you're going to read through five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten times. Probably read through Matthew once at least, or the more the merrier, several times, just to understand Matthew's flow of thought. If you're really trying to drill down on Matthew 548, 
you've got to get Matthew as a whole. So Sermon on the Mount is going to be a big place. Just read it and read it and read it. And then Matthew overall. And look, honestly, if you never even get past this step, you're doing well. And you will be learning and you will be studying just on its own. We're going to get past this step, but I want to emphasize, don't rush or skip, just reading. And it, hey, make this your your default practice anyway. You're just, this is what you do. You read the Bible intently and you'll, you'll find yourself uh, just by nature studying the Bible quite a bit. But we do want to take it further now. We want to keep going about how to drill down a little bit more and get to that authorial intent, the meaning. So let's move on to a third step here. Step one, pray. Step two, read. Step three, I might call uh, familiarize. Familiarize. And trying to get to what the text means, a lot of that just has to do with with what the text says. Meaning, don't take for granted observation, what what it's saying, just the, the, the basics of it. And part of the failure to grasp the meaning is to I fail to grasp just the, the, the background of the text, you might say. And uh, so just kind of doing a background check to help you know who you're dealing with, what you're dealing with. So to make this more specific, there's you know, five areas to get familiar with in setting a passage. In a way, this overlaps with context, but you'll see what I mean. First, you know, as you're maybe reading through the book, try and identify the author and the audience. I know that's kind of obvious, but just identify the author and the audience as a, a first step. And we know God is the ultimate author, but he did use individual men with distinct styles and personalities and vocabularies to write these inspired works. And so you do need to take the individual author into account. It does matter. They did write with distinct styles and emphases. So getting to know the author is a big deal. We've learned that over the past several Sunday mornings firsthand. And maybe the biggest example in scripture, where it's one word, justification. But James and Paul are not using that word in the same way. And if you just read on the surface, Romans 3 and James 2, you see contradiction. But when you study the Bible, you find out this word has a range of meaning. And Paul is using it as a declaration of righteousness. James, and he consistently does so. And James uses it as a demonstration of righteousness it, makes perfect sense. But that's just a classic example of how the author matters and they have a distinct style and vocab and that word can mean both things and just James is focusing on that meaning of the word. But you get what I'm saying. Knowing the author and and their uh, style plays a part in understanding your passage. Same thing for the audience. We know uh, the church in general, God inspired scripture and made it profitable for all the church. But the books of the Bible were initially written to a very specific audience for a very specific reason. And this too must be accounted for because, again, our, our initial goal is just to get the original meaning to the original audience. And from there, we'll ex- extract and apply the meaning for today. But, you know, what did Paul mean for the Ephesian church in Ephesians? What was he after? Why was he writing to them? What were they like? What were some of their issues? That can all just give various shades of meaning to your passage. Third, you're trying to pinpoint the aim of the book. So author, audience, aim in this step of familiarizing yourself with the passage or with the book you're studying. The aim of the book, namely, you know, why is the author writing to his audience? So you have an author, you have an audience. Why is the author writing to this audience? What's his main point? There might be several answers to this question. There might not be just one answer. Some books have clearly multiple threads. But just try and narrow in on the primary focus and understand some books of the Bible tell you. The author outright tells you very succinctly his aim. Like First John 5.13. Where John says, these things I'm writing to you that you may know that you have eternal life. He makes it very clear that the aim of 1 John is assurance of salvation. He writes that they may know that they have eternal life. So anyway, try and find verses like that. It makes it a lot easier. Let the author define for himself his aim. You don't always get those easy ones, but 
uh, try and, as you get to know and read the book over and over again, understand that the aim of the book or the letter. In discerning the aim of the book, it's also helpful to uncover key themes. So fourth, you're going to look for themes. This is going to relate to the aim, of course, but you know, do you find certain words or concepts or subjects repeated throughout the book? Look for these, these key themes. And then you can ask, do any of these key themes show up in your passage? Are there any intersection? How does your passage contribute or relate to or develop these themes or the aim? Just various ways where, uh, hey, you might have a passage that can be maybe a little more tangential to the overall aim of the book, but maybe not. Maybe it's, it's square with a big theme. And so knowing that theme is going to really help you know your passage. And then lastly, do your best to start formulating an outline of the book. If you're a beginner, go ahead and cheat. Use the study Bible. And at the intro, you'll see an outline. Those are great, helpful tools. By the way, you'll also find author, audience, aim, themes, all that stuff. You know, this is basically the intro of a study Bible. And so do your best to find it all yourself. But hey, after, go ahead and read that intro to your study Bible. It's there for a reason. It's great notes to And the whole point of that is to familiarize you with the book, the author, the audience, the aim, the themes, the outline, just to help you get situated in a book written several thousand years ago. And so we need to do that work. So this takes time. This takes thought. But as you just read your book over and over, you're trying to understand the overall message. uh, Don't feel the need to rush. Just, just read. This, this, so far, you're, all you're doing is just reading the book, reading the passage over and over again, getting familiar. Maybe you, you read your study Bible notes, but you're already, already going to learn quite a bit just right here. Now, step four is it's a purely quick, practical step. Uh, step four, organize. Organize. This is a step purely of practical preparation, but if you're going to go further, than this. If you're going to, now you're going to really get into Bible study where you're going to even interpret. You want to really find out what that passage means. You're going to eventually need to start taking some notes. And so you need a system. You need some organization to keep track of it all because you'll just have a, a swirling mess of observations and questions and references and you'll get carried away. So just, this is kind of subjective. Find a system that works for you. But you're going to be amassing lots of information. You want to keep track of it all. So this is the detective getting his pen and paper ready to interrogate and investigate uh, a witness. So how you do this is up to you. You could maybe have a notepad with you know, four pieces of paper or a Word document with four pages. And you could devote a page to each of the following. A page for questions. A page for observations. A page for key words and word studies and a page for an outline, or something like that. You know, just a way to get organized here. And, and as you are studying, a place to write down information that you want to remember. And uh, <clears throat> just, I'll leave it at that, right? It's kind of self-explanatory, but have some sort of a system and develop a, a methodology for, uh, for study and learning. But now, step five. Step five and six, a little bit back-to-back, they go together. Now we're going to get a little more into it. Step five is to question, and step six is to observe. Question and observe. Now it's time to start interrogating question and investigating observation, uh, your text. These two steps, they're not consecutive per se, like you have to do questions first, then you do your observations. They're more concurrent, like it's going to happen at the same time. You're going to be asking questions and forming observations at the same time. But still, if you're having trouble, it's good to conceptually begin by asking questions. Good thing about the step, so step five, question, we'll talk about that now. You don't need to know anything. This step is just based on ignorance. It's great. Just ask questions. You don't have to have any answers. I'm not asking you to give answers yet. You don't have to answer any of these questions yet. Just start writing. You got that paper that says questions. Just, you're looking at your text, just start writing every question that pops into your mind. Just write it. Give me a list. Give me a long list of questions. 
that you want to know from, what's this saying? What does that word mean? Well, how does that verse relate to that verse? Just get a list of questions going. Start compiling every question you can think of. It will be tedious at first. Uh, but in time, you'll learn how to ask the right types of questions. So don't worry about, you know, is, this, is that a dumb question? Don't worry about that. Just write it all down. And as you grow and mature and gain some skill, you'll know you can skip some of these because it's, it's kind of obvious. But hey, at first, just write it all down. It's partly an art, partly a science. But hey, get creative. Spend some time and think. You can't rush the process of question asking. There is actually a bit of an art to the the skill of asking good questions, being a detective, right? Interrogating a text, asking the right types of questions. That's, there's some skill there. It comes with time, but just do your best and start listing questions. Later, you're going to go through and you'll identify the, the key questions that need answers. And that's going to guide your future study. You're going to be your own detective answering your own questions. But this is just a, a very simple step. Perfect for beginners, just get your list of questions going. Begin with observation questions. Observation questions. This is just asking, what does the text say? Just think of the typical who, what, where, when, why, how. You all know that, right? The who, the what, the where, when, why, how. That the typical detective questions. And these will help you get situated in the text. You, you can do this concurrent with reading. You're, you're going to eventually do this concurrent with reading through your text. So maybe you've read it several times. Your next reading, you're going to make a, a pass of just questioning and write them all down. Next, you can move on to interpretation questions. These are after what does the text mean? So what does the text say? Observation, what does the text mean? You're getting now into interpretation Again, you're searching for the authorial intent to the text, the meaning God intended with the original author. You're not asking yet, what does the text mean to me, or how does it apply to me? That's, that's the very end, but you're, you're first just trying to find the original meaning to the original audience, and so just you know, ask away. Again, you're not worrying about answers yet, so even if you think, well, that's a hard question, I have, I have no idea what the answer to that question is. I don't even know where to start to figure out that question. That's okay. That's, that's all you're doing is writing down questions. In fact, that's probably a great question. If you have no idea how to answer it, well, you've got a good question. So write those down. And lastly, as you go through your text and its context, by the way, this applies to the text and various layers of context that are going to relate. You're doing this now for the text and the context. You're going to also identify keywords that merit future study. You don't have to study them now. You're just identifying keywords. Words, you might question, you know, what, what exactly does that mean here? What's the significance of that word? Look for words you don't understand. Like, I don't even know what that means. Write it down. So again, maybe you have a piece of paper that says questions. You've got a piece of paper that says observations. You have a paper that says key words. And in this step here, step five, you're just, and step six, you're just filling out those pages. Questions, observations, key words. Uh, a phrase for this is, uh, I love from, I learned in seminary, pregnant words. Words that are just bursting with meaning. You know there's more in that word, but you're not sure what. And so write that word down and you'll later do a word study and figure out what it means and then what it means in your passage. Like justification. Or you can even have phrases, justification by works. That's a pregnant phrase right there. What does he mean? That's a big one. So write it down. And that's it. All you're doing now is just writing it down. So that's step five. Step five is to question. Step six now is to observe. Again, these go back to back. These are concurrent. But now let's say you've got a good list of questions compiled. Hey, you read through Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, and you compiled a, a solid list of questions. You even threw some key words in there. But now you really want to focus on observations. What can you figure out? about the text. What connections can you make in the text just to arrive at the meaning and what it says? And so now it's time to start making a list of observations. This comes with time. It'll take you years of Bible study to really be able to, to see things quickly. They'll jump out at you. Things of significance jump out much more quickly. But at first, no shortcuts here, no cutting corners. You will not get valuable observations without time. So if you only have like a couple minutes, well, hey, 
good, do what you can, but you need some time here to just saturate, sit, read, ponder, meditate, and observe. It's like a detective skill in a crime scene. If he's there for 30 seconds, he's not going to see that, you know, that little footprint under the, the plate in the corner or whatever, you know. Some time to really go through the scene and look things through to make all those key observations to solve the crime takes time, time and skill. And if you're a beginner, time. So here's a list of things you can look for. It's not exhaustive, but things you can observe. Again, key words, key phrases, key concepts. See, you taking notes. You can always come to me after for this because I might go a little faster. You know, key words, key phrases, concepts, repetition. Anything repetition, there's an easy observation. Just write it down. Like he repeated this several times. You know, repetition of words, phrases, concepts. So I'll help you a little bit with your Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 homework for Wednesday night. You, know, you see that phrase repeated three times, uh, the purpose statement for the, the work of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and and saving us in that passage to the praise of the, his glory, of the glory of his grace. To the praise of the glory of his grace. Three times that phrase occurs. That means something. You know, I don't know what it means yet, so just write it down. Like he said that three times. And well, just write it down. You know, anything that's of repetition, probably a significance. Authors, when you write and you repeat yourself, you, either it's, a, it's like a verbal tick and you did it on accident but if you know what you're doing, you did it on purpose for emphasis. And so in scripture, that's what you're going to find. And so it's, it's there for a reason. The repetition of anything, words, phrases, concepts, write it down. Uh, interesting or unique sentence structure. Again, that may be a little more advanced, but things that stick out a little out of the ordinary uh, for, for the syntax. And that refers to sentence order or sentence structure. For example, uh, what is it like? First Timothy three at the very end of the chapter, he breaks into a little, like a little poem, and it, it leads you to believe, like, is he quoting something? And many believe he's quoting an ancient, you know, one of the earliest hymns, or he just switched from just straight letter to like poetry. Why did he do that? There's a question, and there you also have an observation, like he he just switched the style here and just and introduced poetry in the middle of this passage. Or here's an Old Testament quote, observation, question, just start writing down. Key prepositions, conjunctions, adjectives. That's my challenge. Your, your own English grammar, so be it. You know, take a free course online or something. You know, you got in seminary, the first class I took, I remember, well, I started fall of 2006. Uh, before you start, at least back then, you had to take an English grammar crash course, a hardcore. I think it was like three-day full-time like intense English grammar. And I was like, man, I forgot I, all of this stuff. I had no idea what a you know, preposition was. And I was engineering, so I was way more math science. Although, you know, I was fine with English, but I had forgotten so much. And I remember at the time I had like, I think I had the flu and a hundred degree fever, but I ha- you could not miss, you had to be there. So it was, it was a bit rough. That was a rough intro to seminary. But anyway, you know, prepositions, you know, j- basically uh, joining words, or transition words, adjectives, those are words that uh, further uh, define a word. So some of those key words you want to look for. Parallelism, any sort of uh, parallelism, of course, you'll find that in the Old Testament a bunch. That's really key to a Hebrew way of writing, parallelism, but something to look out for. Comparisons or contrasts that show up, I guess might be obvious, but something to observe, and that's something that might significance. Commands, uh, commands and verbs. Verbs are your action words, right? And some of those verbs are going to be commands. Always worth noting, the verbs are huge, especially in the New Testament epistles, your action words. There, there's going to be an observation there. What, what are my verbs? And then especially the commands. Am I being told to do something here? Uh, references to time, people, places, or events. That's, that's a good one, right? That's a, a perfect observation that helps to situate you in the text, references to persons, uh, people, places, or events. And then any reference to, hey, God the Father, Son, or Holy Spirit, observation, write it down. What is being said? I mean, the Bible is a revelation of God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so in your passage or the context, you see wherever it talks about God, 
Write it down. Observation. What's being said about God? What can we learn about God? Or maybe other key subjects like salvation. What can we learn about salvation here? Or or so forth. This is not exhaustive, but this is already quite a list of things you can observe in your passage. And again, this might sound maybe overwhelming or tedious. And at first it might be. But over time, you'll learn to identify like some things you can maybe skip over. You know, you don't need to write all that down. And you really jump to some critical observations and critical questions. And things go a bit faster. But at first, just embrace it. Just sit down and just, I'm going to make a couple page list of observations and questions. Just get after it. And that's how you grow as a student of the Bible, how to study the Bible. Once you feel like you've got a solid list of observations from your text and questions, again, you want to repeat that process for the context. You don't need to be as exhaustive, but you, you want to repeat the steps of question and observe for you know, the thought context, the paragraph or the thought context, just to help you. Because again, context is king, as is often said in Bible study. Now, keep in mind, you're still in the observation stage. You're not in the interpretation stage. So you're still not worrying about what the text means. You're just trying to figure out what it says by way of question and observation. You're not, an- you're not answering anything right now. You're just asking and observing. It'll seem rigid at first, but it will become more fluid over time. And uh, I think most people are accustomed to just skimming over Scripture rather superficially. And so this is just a great exercise to really approach Scripture more uh, studiously. And give your eyes time to adjust, and you'll start seeing things pop out in Scripture. You start seeing those connections you never saw before, and you're like, it's right there. Maybe sometimes you might have the experience in a sermon, you're like, hey, I never knew that connection. And now it seems so obvious, like, wow, I, I never heard that before. And most of that comes just by reading the text deeply, spending a little more time than just a uh, a casual reading, there are times where you need to dig in a little bit more. Now, finally, if you feel like you've hit a wall in observation making, you can try some of these suggestions because there comes a time where maybe you're like, I I can't come up with anything here or I feel a little bit lost. You're trying to make observations because that's a big step. You hit a wall. Well, first, uh, go back to your list of questions and see if you can already answer some of your questions by your own observations. Maybe in your list of questions, you, you had a question of like, you know, what, what does this mean? Or why does he say that here? Or, you know, I wonder what that is. And maybe later in the passage, you find out he answers it, or you find an answer by observation. Anyway, just see if you can already cross off some of your own questions and say answered by your own observations. That gives you a little feeling of progress. It is progress. Secondly, You can, after you spend time in your text, you have permission to leave your text, but stay in the Bible and look up cross-references. This can be part of the observation stage a bit, so look up some cross-references. A study Bible will help point you to cross-references for your passage. But you see, you know, what is said elsewhere in Scripture, again, those are not inspired, but Bible translations have added those as study tools where they have identified other key passages in Scripture that seem to relate or have, uh, that, that can, you know, cross-reference to your passage. That can help shed some light, perhaps, on your passage. So, look them up and uh, ask questions and make observations. You're still just investigating, but look up your cross-references. Uh, you do have to be selective here. Again, this comes with time, but uh, I might say maybe a mistake or just a, a flaw of a young teacher or Bible student is just they flood the cross-references, and a lot of them, they're not bad, they're just irrelevant. Just because that word showed up somewhere else in the Bible doesn't mean it actually has anything to do with your passage at all, and oftentimes it doesn't, just because it's the same word or or whatnot. And so, for example, this morning, Rahab, okay, that's a valuable cross-reference. That's, okay, Joshua 2, Joshua 6, that's going to be a big deal, Hebrews 11. But a lot of the times you might see just a cross-reference in it, it has no real bearing and uh, so you don't need to uh, worry about those per se. Make sure you have a relevant cross-references. And what those are, well, that, that will come with time. And third, a third thing you can do, if you kind of hit a wall on observation, is to pull up multiple translations at the same time. 
kind of need a computer for this unless you have a bunch lying around, but you can go to various websites and you can, uh, they'll, they'll pull up several translations in the same screen. So you can type in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, and you'll see NASB, ESV, NIV, New King James, whatever, all at the same time and read them and you'll see some translation differences. And these are really helpful since you're not studying the Greek and the Hebrew. When you see differences in translation, you're helping identify underlying differences in, in how the original was treated. And that just helps to identify translation issues, and those can point you to further study. Sometimes your passage may be relatively straightforward to translate. Other times you might see some differences in the translations. Again, remember, they're not all created equal, but it can just point you to areas for future study. A classic example, since we're going to study Ephesians on Wednesday nights, go to Ephesians chapter 1. Maybe you're, you're doing the homework for this week, verses 3 through 14, and you're doing observation. You're doing your own questions. You want to study this on your own. Looking up some cross-references, things are going well. You say, okay, it's time. I want to throw up some other translations here and see what they say. And you'll notice a difference in verse 4. Even if the words are the same, you'll notice a punctuation. Maybe the, one of the most uh, famous punctuation differences in the Bible Remember, the punctuation is not inspired. The original Greek manuscripts had no punctuation. Those were added later uh, to obviously aid in understanding. But that means, although it's vast majority, there's really no question as to the punctuation. In verse 4, there is a bit of an interpretive question in the punctuation. Look at Ephesians 1 verse 4. It says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, Uh, that we would be holy and blameless before him, period, in love. And then verse 5. Isn't that kind of strange? Like, why wouldn't verse 5 begin after the period? Why would they put a period and then two words in the new verse? Well, that's because uh, the guys who originally put the verse numbers in there, they put the period after in love, as does today the New King James, the NRSV, and several other translations. Their, Their verse will read, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love, period. Next verse, he predestined us, like next thought. You see what I'm saying? That's purely a a translation issue. But where there's clearly a change of thought here, you know, a progression from one sentence to the next. So it happens. Sometime in between verse four and five, a new sentence begins. But where exactly does it end? And in the original Greek, since we don't have exact punctuation, it's up to interpretation, And so it comes down to, is Paul saying God chose us that we would be holy and blameless in love? Or is he saying that in verse 5, he predestined us to adoption as sons in love? Meaning love, this unconditional love was the motivation for his choosing. Which is it? Well, it's a classic interpretation issue. And for now, you just get to write it down. You don't have to answer it. Just write it down. Uh, You have a good observation, a good question to make there. And in later study, you'd you'd figure it out. Um, So pulling up multiple translations can uh, help you quite a bit. Just identifying key areas for further study. All right, well, just about on time. We're going to stop here. This is a two-parter. So next week, we're going to come back. This is kind of the the foundational side. This is the bread and the butter. You're just, you're reading. You're making observations. You're writing down questions. And this is a bulk of the work is right here and just getting in the text and studying. But we're not done because next time we want to get into the more involved steps of interpretation. Because you're going to have all your questions, but now how do you find those answers? And, and would you not say, like, if you had a passage and you had a list of questions and you're like, I can't think of any more questions. So you've got a solid list of questions for your passage. Would you agree that if you had answers to every single one of those questions, you would say that you, you know that passage pretty well. You have studied that pretty well, and you could even have come to the authorial interpretation, right? I think it's fair to say. So if you can, in Bible study, you've got your list of questions, and it's, it's a good list. If you can answer all those questions, hey, you've done a pretty good job. You've studied that passage, I'd say, pretty well. 
And so we're going to come back next time and find out you know, how to study the Bible, which includes now how to answer all those questions and how to really arrive at the intended meaning of the passage. And, and there you go. So we'll do that next time. Sound good? Okay, well, let's pray. Well, Lord, we thank you for your word and that you've given it to us and that it's accessible. You've not left us without help to, to know you. You've given us a revelation to know you. You've revealed yourself in scripture that we can know you personally and your son whom you've sent. We can know the way of salvation. We thank you also you've given us the spirit who reveals scripture to us and, and helps us understand. You've given us everything we need for life and godliness. You've just, we have an embarrassment of riches in scripture for of spiritual food and, and wisdom and insight. Everything we need, it's, it's profitable for, for all of us that we'd be thoroughly equipped for every good work. What's left for us, though, is now to just take and eat and to, to drink freely from the waters. And uh, we need to do that. We need to be reading and studying your word, cutting it straight, rightly dividing it, that we'd be found approved. This is especially true for those in leadership, those leading others in, in various forms. They're going to be ministers of the word. They've got to know what the word says. They've got to study it themselves and, and cut it straight. So help us to be faithful in this process. Build us up in how to just read the Bible for all it's worth. How to study it and understand uh, what it means and, and what you have for us. We want to get it right, Lord. So keep us humble. Keep us free from preconceptions or, or baggage from reading into it. We don't want that. We just want to let it speak for itself. But we must always be wary of our, our preconceived notions. So just keep us humble and dependent on you. And that we trust you'd guide us into the truth. So be with us and help us in this process. Build us up uh, to be Bible students. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.